3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Clap your hands. Hello, it's Monday morning, Monday the 7th of February. Thank you so much for listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. It is a thrill, it's a pleasure, it's wonderful to have your company on the show today. My name's Evan, you're going to be listening to Monday Breakfast with Evan and Jacob and looking forward to your company over the next hour and a half. It's a hot one today in Melbourne after a bit of a break last week. The hot weather is definitely back in the city. Hope you had a good weekend, whether it was recovering from potentially the first week back at school, whether it was getting back into the office, whether it was just uh, a weekend where you had a bit of a chance to unwind or take it easy. Whatever you did, however you spent it, I do hope it was a good one because it's still summertime. We've got a, a month of summer 3CR breakfast and yeah, it's always good to still see a little bit of uh, light in the morning and to have a little bit of sun against the back of the neck. We have quite a show lined up for you. We're going to be speaking about a, a few different topics. Uh, first on the show, you'll be hearing from Penny Olsen, who is a ornithologist from the Australian National University. She's released a book all about the history of budgerigars and our connection, our relationship with these amazing birds. You'll also be hearing from Irene Noyce from the Renters and Housing Union about an event that's taking place in partnership with 3C. Are, um, you'll hear some, well, you'll hear just one conversation with Aziz, who I met in Cairns about his hopes for 2022, some of the challenges that he's had over the last couple of years, and also, too, looking at his views and perspectives for this year's election. A couple of other interviews in there as well. Um, we'll be speaking all about Tamil Oppression Day and then rounding out the show, Mary Kostakidis from SBS talking about the latest in the Julian Assange case. As always, good music here on 3CR Monday Breakfast. That is something that we can always promise you, listeners. Um, you'll be hearing the likes of Sever, Nightmares on Wax, um, Shreesha, um, Race Rage, Eric Bibb. What a lineup! Also a classic from John Martin as well a little bit later this morning. But first up, you're going to be hearing Process. It's by Sabu, Milanring and Taku. Hope you're having a good morning. And this is... 3CR Monday Breakfast. Yeah. 
This is 3C um, Monday Breakfast. Hope you're having a good morning. That was processed by Sabu. Good tune. Good one to kickstart the morning. Great to have your company as always on 3CR Monday Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name and soon Jacob Gamble will also be in the studio as well too. Making news, uh, today the Treasurer, Joss Frydenberg, will be making an announcement where rapid antigen tests are going to be made tax-deductible. Quite a change in how, well, how this debate around rapid antigen tests have come along. It all feels a bit surreal and a bit strange as to how we've responded to developments over the supply chain challenges that are associated with rapid antigen tests, with how we've come to integrate it within our workplaces as well too. And now they're being made a tax-deductible item. Fascinating how this one will look. But the bigger context, I suppose, with this announcement to the uh, Centre for Economic Development Australia is that the Treasurer is very much flagging the government's line that the time for government support for um, pandemic-based subsidies is going to come to an end. This is an announcement which we've heard a number of times over the last two years. It is interesting language in the lead-up to an election that a government was really wanting to um, picture itself as the backer of the so-called economy uh, and allowing the market levers to move in a way that, uh, yeah, move in a way that they're hoping will be able to, to take care of themselves. I just wonder what the response will be from the federal opposition. We are so close to an election at the moment. Is this going to be a response from the Labour Party that emerges where we see that there is a call for a level of government assistance, government support as we move through a period of uncertainty with respect to the pandemic. Just over the weekend, um, we've seen leading epidemiologists advise both state and federal governments to prepare for the next variant. Tony Blakely from the University of Melbourne stating very, very strongly that there will be another significant COVID wave that emerges in the next number of months in Australia uh, that may be just as infectious as Omicron, that may be just as virulent as Delta. There isn't an epidemiologist that won't label the potential for a new 
um, variant as being a stark reality facing the country, but a, a significant development uh, on that front. A bit of good news for all of our um, um, supporters out there of public media that the federal government is finally moving away from its decision to cease indexation of funding for the ABC uh, and commit to funding certainty for the public broadcaster over the next three years, which is going to result in the um, in ABC receiving $3.3 billion in funding over the next three years. That's good news for those out there who really do support the role of a public broadcaster within within our wider community. That is the news for Monday 7th of February. There is a lot more news out there um, and there are a lot more stories and there are stories that we are looking forward to sharing with you on 3CR Monday Breakfast. What a show which is going to take you on that adventure of all sorts of developments that are happening right here in the community in Melbourne uh, and also news that is pressing overseas. But next, well, next is a a piece that I really enjoyed uh, recording. It was an interview with Penny Olsen that I did on Friday on the history of the Budrigar, how they emerged from a desert dweller to an international commodity and now one of the world's most famous and celebrated pets. But before we get there, this is a tune from Nightmares on Wax. It's You Wish. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast with Evan and Jacob. Great having your company. Hope you're having a really splendid morning. Thank you. 
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.
3C um, Monday Breakfast. That was Ace and Light by Tever. What a track. It's Monday morning. It's Monday the 7th of February. It's wonderful having your company. And Jacob, it's great having you in the studio. Great to see you again. Yeah, it's fantastic being here. Thanks so much for, for having me in your studio, Evan. Oh, it's definitely not my studio. These are the studios of 3C. <laughs> oh, it's just so nice after all the uh, ins and outs over the last couple of months for the people having to do different things with COVID-19 and different responses and summer period just to be back in the studio once more and so so good to, to see you here and, and how are you doing? How, how was your weekend, Jacob? Um, my weekend was uh, very chaotic mm-hmm. but I think in probably the best way. So, okay. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can really go into all the details uh, live <laughs> on air today but, but I had a great time um, and the, the weather was really nice um, and honestly it's just great to be out and about. So I've been going to a lot of the events for midsummer, yeah. um, which has been happening, if those uh, that might not be aware, um, it's happening up until the 13th of February. So it's uh, Melbourne's premier queer arts and culture festival. Um, so I went to a few things. Probably the highlight would have been a play on Thursday night at Theatreworks in St Kilda, and it was <laughs> called Slutnik, um, and it was all about lesbian space cannibals oh wow that's not a, a, an everyday performance definitely not uh, no. and, and we impressed we're happy with with the show i would rate it wholesomely a four and a half out of five wow. i was um, i was quite pleased <laughs> with the um performance it was definitely something you don't see every day yeah um and narratively i don't know if that's a word but i guess um the storyline while it wasn't like um probably a bit more static than you would normally see in, in a theatre show, but the themes that it explored, um, the types of different genres of theatre that it dips its toe into, um, and some of the comedy we got from it, was really worth the watch. So I would recommend, um, but I think the season is over, sadly. However, I did interview um, some of the cast members and the uh, the writer and the director, so I host another show on 3CR called Queering the Air, so next Sunday we're doing a little midsummer special, and you can catch all of that from 3 o'clock um, next Sunday, if you're curious oh, to really know. really curious, I'm really interested to, to hearing about the inspiration behind the show as well too, it takes a lot of uh, creativity to come up with the idea of a, uh, a show about space cannibal lesbians, um, so mm. curious to see how it all ties in together. Mm, yeah. Oh, I'm glad you had a good weekend. Good chaos can be uh, a wonderful, wonderful time for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, good chaos is better than good neutral, I always say. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's entertaining. Is, <laughs> this is true, and you end up with a few good stories to tell as well. I had a, actually a very, very laid-back weekend, this one, which is mm-hmm. probably the first since the very beginning of the year, uh, which was lovely start of the weekend at the beach and then made my way back to Melbourne. I saw a film in, mm. at, at the theatres for the first time in about a year, which was great to get to. I just can't believe it took 12 months to go from uh, from one movie to another with uh, so much online streaming and consumption. It was just excellent to be able to, to sit there with a, a choc top in hand and some, and some popcorn and watch a good one, The French Dispatch by Wes Anderson. It was... Yeah, it was beautifully filmed. There were stories within a story to make a story in true Wes Anderson style, and yeah, it was a treat. It was a, it was a good Saturday night. And then yesterday, 
actually managed to have a bit of a nap on the couch in the afternoon. Which oh, wow. Is a, <laughs> this is unique for you, isn't it? It is quite <laughs> unique for someone who's having a bit of trouble slowing down at the moment. So it's been, it's been a good one for sure. Well done, Evan. I'm <laughs> proud of you. <laughs> Jacob, thanks for the support. <laughs> um, another person who we're wanting to get around as well too is Penny Olsen. If it's not apparent to everybody listening, I'm a huge fan of Australian wildlife and especially passionate about birds and protecting the habitat of those facing threats of climate change, logging and dehabitation. But one bird that isn't facing that risk um, is the world-famous budrigar. Ornithologist Dr Penny Olsen has zoomed out a bit and looked at the connection that this bird has with the history of Australian colonisation and then globalisation in the first half of the 20th century. Her book, The Flight of the Budgerigar, it's incredible and it does an excellent job at looking at how budgies have transitioned from a happy desert dweller to one of the world's most cherished pets. Here's Penny Olsen and I started by asking her about what her motivation was to write such a book. About the history of Australian ornithology, uh, you know, both the people and, and the um, animals, and you know, budgies come up a lot, and just the, just the scale of the thing was was astounding. The, there were convict ships would go back with their holds just full of full of budgies, thousands and thousands of budgies, and um and, and the captains and and you know some of the more senior crew would you know made small fortunes from it. Uh, for a brief time at least until they started um, breeding them in captivity in Europe. And then, and then from there it just kept um, rolling and rolling as well in terms of that, yeah, demand for budgies internationally. So, so as you're saying, starting off with that um, uh, incredible interest uh, when Australia was still establishing itself as, as a nation to then a point, say, in the 20th century where um, the industry of budgie trade boomed in a way that was quite uh, unprecedented and, and, and hard to imagine. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the other parrots went too, but just not on the scale of the budgies. And then, and then of course, because the budgie is, is um, small and easy to feed and, and in a way a bit um, surprisingly are bred very readily in captivity, which a lot of the other parrots don't don't do. Um, it it just really took off, and 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 it uh, once the market was flooded, almost anyone could buy a budgie, and almost anyone could afford to feed a budgie. It it, it shifted from being the province of the of the really wealthy who had could buy just about anything to put in their menageries or the, or their um, their lounge rooms. Um, to being accessible to anyone. So just took off. And, of course, back then, you know, feeding a dog was beyond most people. Uh, but a budgie would live on a bit of bread and water, basically. So to frame it in a, another way, you could say in many senses that the budgie girl was very much a, a working-class animal. Yes, it certainly began as an upper-class trophy, I guess you'd have to say. Um, stuffed budgies as well as living ones for a while and and then uh, yes it became became accessible to anyone was there a particular angle in the book that you enjoyed exploring the most was it painting a picture of wild budgies or was it looking at their rise to stardom and the role of celebrity budgigars or was it thinking about some of those ins and outs of budgies as a commodity i'm curious what your favorite angle was to explore 
Probably all of the above, but the most enjoyable part to me for most of my books is finding the illustrations. You know, they say so much about the times and uh, our views of the bird and, yeah. And the illustrations are incredible, especially some of those um, pictures uh, and drawings, incredible drawings from the 19th century. Tell us about the process that went into finding and, uh, and yeah, identifying uh, how you would go about painting that wonderful image of um, Badrigars at that point of time. Oh, goodness. Well, you know, in the, at the very beginning, it was a new new species and and at that time and that was about uh was 1805 i think you know it was a real uh, a real real prize to be able to claim that you'd found a new species and name it and describe it and find an artist then to draw it for you so so they were drawing painting things that were very foreign to them they often just had a the distorted skin in front of them it might have been overstuffed or damaged or you know some poor shot animal that was in in tatters and that's all I had to go on and maybe only had a vague idea of what a parrot looked like but maybe not a tiny one like budgie and so you know and it progressed over the years to people becoming more and more familiar with them and getting them more and more right for for a time when budgie Breeding began whole scale and, and they began developing the budgie for, um, for the show, altering it, that is, in, in terms of color and size and, and, and shape. The, the canary was the ideal and the, and the, um, some of the budgie images from that time look rather canary-like. Yeah. And of course, today they're much more naturalistic. Um, you talked about the differences there between how budgies have been bred and how they appear now in captivity versus what they are like in the wild. Can you talk me through some of those key differences between the budgies that you might find at someone's home or perhaps being entered into a bird show versus those that you will find in arid parts of Australia? I suppose the most obvious difference to most people is their colour, you know, the variety of, the enormous variety of colours and patterns that you can get now. Some of them are quite gorgeous, I must say, whereas the wild budgie is only only um, green and gold with a very rare, very rarely you get a yellow, um, some yellow ones, but they soon get picked off by predators because they just stand out in in the big flocks and um, so they don't last long. Um, so the yellow variety obviously was the first one that was discovered, if you like. But yes, so the amazing colours. And then over time, they, um, as I say, because the canary was the, the, uh, the show bird of choice for exhibitors, they started to try to get bigger heads and, uh, on the budgie, proportionately bigger heads, and then bigger budgies. So that now some of the show birds can be twice the size of the uh, the wild budgie, and and uh, pet shop birds are probably somewhere in between, maybe a little bit closer to the wild budgie. They tend to have um, looser feathers, and the, and the head looks at least looks bigger because the um, feathers partly cover the eye. So the wild birds have what I would call slightly poppy eyes. Um, but the cage birds don't. And also we've, we've altered their, um, 
behaviour. So they they're um, much more placid and happy to be in captivity and uh, and, and love attention and um, yeah. Excellent description there. Thank you, Penny. And finally, you talked a little bit about that before the process of, of naming a bird. The word budgerigar, it turns out there's a bit of a funny and somewhat predictable story about how this wonderful green and yellow bird received its name in the first place. Oh, and yes, and that made it quite difficult searching through the literature to to find budgies because the vast number of names they had and then the um and then looking for um what happened to the word yeah, how we arrived at Budgerigar. Um, the, but the main story is, you know, John, John Gould, who was the man who you have to say was responsible for popularizing them because he took the first, first pair of birds back to, um, Britain and showed them around at these scientific meetings and things and wrote in his book that, um, the birds of Australia that, um, you know, they were probably the ideal cage bird. So, um, Yes, so he he visited Australia in the, in the late 1830s, went out to the hunter and the, the budgies just happened to be there. It was, must have been a good year in the inland and they dispersed out somewhat towards the coast. And he was, um, he had some, um, Australian companions called, uh, one of them was called Natty. And they told him they were called budgerigars or betterigars or some variation on that. The spelling does vary depending on where you look. And he took that to mean the, the name of the bird. But, um, you know, linguists, um, say that that's, that's not, not the actual word for the bird. Betchery or a similar word was, um, used around Sydney in the early days to mean good. So, so, you know, if you were a European at a, at um corroboree and you'd clap and say, you know, betchery, betchery. So so that half of the word it's pretty clear mean is is pigeon English. Uh yeah, mm-hmm. so it's pigeon for um good. And the other half it, you know, the derivation isn't the source isn't so clear, but um two the two options seem to to um pop up and that's um good bird or good parrot and the and the other one which which I think is probably too is good to eat. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it's an all, all too familiar story. Penny, thank you so much for chatting with me on 3CR Monday Breakfast and also for writing such an incredible account of the Budriga. I really appreciate your time on the show. Oh, lovely. Thank you, Evan. 3CR Monday Breakfast. That was Penny Olsen with her accounts and analysis and thoughts and reflections on the Budrigar. It's all in her book, The Flight of the Budrigar. Quite funny how the Budrigar ended up uh, receiving its name. Um, as sure as I am that they probably taste delicious, I'm not sure whether I could bring myself to eat a Budrigar. For you, Jacob? Uh, I would probably say no as well. I, I, <laughs> first of all, I'm a vegetarian. so uh, There's a first barrier. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the first. Um, but secondly... Eating a budgerigar, like, I don't know, it's not for me. Um, there we are, but um, probably centuries and um, of tradition as well too, eating budgerigar from everything that Penny Olsen makes clear in her history of, uh, of this wonderful bird. It's a really fascinating account. At one stage, they were the most popular domestic pet in the world. That's a bit staggering to believe. I mean, to think that here we have this bird that inhabits the deserts of Australia. Have you ever seen one in, in, in the wild, Jacob? 
Um, sadly, I have not. Have you? I, I have a couple of times on a few different desert adventures, and it's a, it's a pretty special experience. They're really delightful birds, and they can colour the sky when they're there in a huge flock as well, too, and they're pretty raucous as well. Um, but, yeah, to think that these birds that are found in some of the most isolated parts of Australia were at one stage the world's most popular pet, mm. it's quite a mind spin. Yeah, no, it's quite an extraordinary thing. And can you imagine going over to someone's house and there's just a, a budgerigar sitting there in a cage? Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's a disconnect that's there for me as well too. When you have that sort of such a strong association with the birds in the natural habitat, and then to think about too how they've been uh, transformed and altered over years—the the blue budgies, the giant budgies as well too. Mm. Anyway, I find it all all very very interesting. But the book itself, as you could hear from the interview with Penny too, covering also the the history of uh, of globalization and its connection with the bird, and also to yeah how changing dynamics in the 20th century could be reflected in the the changing colours of the budgie. Moving the dial a little bit now, last week we heard from a few folk in um, southern New South Wales, in in Wagga and in in Queanbeyan, about people's hopes and views and perspectives for the year and a bit about how they were approaching the election in 2022. You're about to hear from Aziz, who I met when I was in Cairns in the middle of of January at the Rusty's Food Market. Cairns is a really crucial electorate this year in the Australian election. It's, uh, it's a marginal seat held by Warren Eng, and it's an electorate where if uh, the government's to change, it's probably a seat in Queensland that also needs to change too, and it's a, a place as well that's very tied up with um, debate around protection of the Great Barrier Reef and climate change too. So I spoke with Aziz, who I met with the market, about his hopes and, and views for the year and a bit about his um, his perspectives on, on federal politics. Aziz has had a, a challenging number of years, losing his wife, and those personal reflections and accounts also feed into how he's looking uh, at the world and how he's looking at the state of, of politics too. It's Aziz. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. It is 7.35am. You're with Jacob and Evan. Well, I'm from Northern Territory myself, mm-hmm. and I like uh, I come from Asian background, and uh, for me, Cairns just like home, you know, because uh, the weather tropical and and uh, people are so lovely up here, pretty, you know, just, uh, very friendly, you know, and. Uh, Compared to where I come from, with Alice Spring in you know, the desert, you know, not many. Um, there's a lot of pe- people, but not many like multicultures kind of mingle around, you know, with people. Especially this rusty market here, more like sort of like Asian people, and uh, not just Asian. I mean, Torres Strait and all. And I feel feel really uh, close. And uh, what I mean close is uh, like as as a human, you know, we close together, you know, not separated by colour or anything like that. I like that. It's, yeah, it's pretty different to Todd Moore. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, Todd Moore is nice too, isn't it? It's, it's very different, yeah. Yeah, just about bigger and, as you say, different groups and, and different communities here, without a doubt. But I like your description. That's cool. It captures a lot. Tell me, we're at the start of the year, people are planning, they're putting in goals, they're trying to keep their resolutions alive for 2022. Do you have any goals or resolutions for the year? Well, 
I have, but it's kind of died down a bit, you know, because uh, what I mean by like die down is just like I don't know where we're heading, you know, because uh, I, 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 like when you plan something and then you want to do it, and then next minute it's just like oh. God, you know, I can't do this again, and you know, I just can't travel back home overseas, go and get married or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like, the hope, there's no hope, you know. Yeah. I, I can see there's something there, but how long can we wait, you know? Life's, life's just keep going on. Maybe I might be gone tomorrow, you know. <laughs> that's, that's a very philosophical way of looking at it. Um, but... Tell me, how the, has the pandemic been for you? How have the last couple of years? It seems like you've been a bit frustrated by a lot of the uncertainty and a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the tumultuous nature of the last couple of years. Last couple of years. Well, I came, I came down uh, about three years ago, and I had a property, me and my wife, you know, and uh, my wife passed away two years ago, you know. That kind of just like, you know. Uh, crumbled me a bit, you know. Sorry to hear. Yeah, it kind of, and then it took me oh quite some time. I'm still going through this, you know. It was just like yeah, just trying to get, get ahead above the water at the moment, you know. Just trying to be happy and just life still goes on, whatever how whatever happened to us, you know. We have to survive. And uh, I just come back. I've been being strong with George and I, you know, and friends around, you know, just give support, you know, which uh, it helps a lot, you know. Yeah. Great sense of having friends around you and community is really important when things are things are super challenging. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I'm not working at the moment for the past well over two years now, you know, and just using my little bit of income saving, you know, but that's, it's not going to last forever, you know, so now kinda, I get a bit strong and just like trying to look for a job and last 2017, the doctor diagnosed me I had a cancer, you know, I kind of just like, and I just like, oh man, this is one thing after the other. Yeah, you know, and um, they want you know, they were going through and ah oh, now you gotta have this, you gotta have that, you know. I, you know, I just it's just too overwhelming. You know? When and I like uh, yeah, we listen to the doctor, but I want to fix it myself because my body, you know, I know better than doctor. Yeah, doc, the doctor, I respect, but I feel bit. Anyway, last year they came up to me and said, "You don't have a cancer." Now, if I go back in 2017, if I had an operation, I had a chemo, would I be standing up here talking to you? Maybe not. You know? Yeah. Yeah, so I was quite, oh yeah, I'm happy. But in the meantime, between 2017 and 2022, I did all natural medication, you know? Everything is natural. Stop eating rubbish, food, sugar, and all those things, you know, eat all the natural plant stuff. Well, I got better. I'm really happy to hear that. It's been a lot, of, a lot of challenges and a lot of things that have happened over the last number of years, and 
a lot most a, a huge amount for most people where does that leave for you politics and so this year it's a federal election in australia any interest in actually what's happening in australian politics or with so much happening do you just sort of say oh well you know park that and move along with life yeah with politics i mean yes and no you know we can't and you know, can't we ordinary people you know just like we only can vote and get this government out and vote in this keep this government you know but at the end of the day left or right you know the the boats you know it's got two wing a left wing or right wing you know they're all one body you know they the system's all the same you know same system different people you know they're not going to change the system too much you know yeah. the system's going to be there it's made for them it doesn't make for us you know so i kind of yes i interested but you know but sometimes just like whatever you know i run i govern my own body i govern myself you know so just keep it that way not think too much about stress ah oh, is and that and this and that it's no point and i i, I don't think i don't think we can you know I, I I don't know whether we can change or we cannot we can change the government or what, what, at the end of the day they're still doing what they want to do. Yeah. Very fair. Very really valid perspective. Final question. I'm really interested in this one. Are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the year ahead? I always feel uh, positive within myself. Yeah. Whatever uh whatever I do in life, you know, because uh positivity is just uh make your journey a bit lighter and easy and and uh the main thing is to to be happy inside you know and uh whatever happen around us us it's just that's natural you know it's gonna it's not gonna change you know so positivity is the best way to go thanks so much for chatting with me No worries man. You have a good day, yeah? Yeah, thank you. 3CR Monday breakfast. That was Aziz in Cairns. It's 7:44. Right now here is a classic from John Martin with May You Never. Coming up next, you're going to be hearing the latest on Tamil Oppression Day and also talking housing justice and the latest in the Julian Assange case. It's 3CR Monday breakfast.
Melbourne Pride will be taking over Smith Street and Gertrude Street Precinct on Sunday the 13th of February between 11am and 9pm. This free event is a state government initiative delivered by festival partner Midsummer to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. The Fitzroy Precinct will be transformed into a huge street party with two music stages, activities, community stores and more. For more information, visit midsummer.org.au. Midsummer is a 3CR supporter. Good morning. You're on 3CR, joined by Jacob and Evan. Hope you're all having a lovely morning. Up next, we've got a segment on Tamil Oppression Day. So some of you may know last Thursday, the 4th of February, was Sri Lankan Independence Day. And now this was a day that is celebrated by a large number of Sri Lankan people. However, for some minorities, um, including the Tamils and some Muslim minorities, it's actually a day that represents something a little more grim. It represents the handing over of oppression or oppressive powers from one group the British to another, the Sri Lankan government in this case. And so I sat down with Renuga Imkapa, chat a little bit about what Tamil Oppression Day is, and we discussed as well the work of the Tamil Refugee Council. Uh, so take a look. 
So my name is Renuga Inbukumar, and since I was 12 years old, um, I went to visit refugees in Villawood, and I felt a sense of disgust with the Australian government and the treatment towards my Tamil brothers and sisters. Um, so ever since then, I've been advocating for refugee and Elam Tamil rights, and I have used different avenues to spread awareness, so such as attending the 43rd session of human rights in Geneva when I was in year 12. So TRC was founded on 2011 in response to the mass arrival of refugees from Tamil Elam. So TRC involves raising awareness of the particular changes, challenges facing members of the Tamil Elam community and we're campaigning to change Australian government refugee policy. Awesome. Sounds like a great organisation. I know for many in Sri Lanka, Last Thursday, the 4th of February, marked the anniversary of freedom from British rule. But I understand that this date means something different for Tamil and Muslim minorities in the country. So on the 4th of February every year, the Sri Lankan government celebrates the anniversary of the day the British colonial regime handed them independence. But for Tamil-speaking people on the island, the 4th of February, 1948, represents the day that power was handed from one oppressor to another. So since then, Tamils have been targeted by repressive state legislation, by economic blockades on Tamil majority areas, and horrific programs that kill thousands and force thousands more to flee. So I'll give an example. So for instance, in 1956, when the single only act was passed, 22-year-old Thirumalai Natarajan was shot dead when he attempted to remove a Sri Lankan flag and replace it with the black flag on Tamil Oppression Day. And his act was a peaceful protest, but it was faced with brutality and it showcased the many malicious acts Elam Tamils have faced. Um, the Sri Lankan state, you know, continues to engage in the cultural genocide of Elam Tamils. So this is done through rewriting Tamil narratives and it's through the destruction of Tamil landmarks and artifacts. So there's been a false accusation that we as a nation are a minority, but we are actually the majority in our own homeland, Tamil Elam. Mm-hmm. Lots of cultural destruction happening there. And I know that the country was engaged in a lot of physical violence too. Um, over a few decades, there was a civil war as Tamil groups resisted an oppressive government. Now, the war ended in 2009, but what are relations like today between the government um, of Sri Lanka and the Tamil population? So I would say it, it was never a civil war, but rather genocide that started since 1948 and has been ongoing. So today the individual that is in power is President Gautabaya Rajapaksa, and he exhibits extreme uh, megalomaniac attitudes towards the Elam population. So President Gautabaya Rajapaksa was in power when he allowed the raping and killing of Elam Tamils in 2009. But since 1948, Elam Tamils have been persecuted due to their nationality and it has resulted in the massacre that occurred in 2009. But in 2009, it had brought a flood of boats to Australia, but it sadly has resulted the Australian government in deporting back Elam Tamils to Sri Lanka. But it must be recognised that this was not a civil war, but a planned systemic genocide against the Elam Tamils. Um, that has been enacted through the Sinhalese-led Sri Lankan government through legal means, which has actually enabled and facilitated discrimination against Tamils. 
So like even today, Tamil mothers without any justification to what happened to their disappeared loved ones are dying while the Sri Lankan state continues to persecute them. And Elan Tamils are not allowed to commemorate Tamil civilians who have died without police interfering. And our Elam Tamils, I would say, had never had any sort of relations with the government. And in fact, the Sri Lankan government have sadly believed that we are an inferior group since 1948. It's definitely a, a um, grim picture for the, the government and the Tamil people. So what has the response been from Australia as well as other countries? So if I could explain it in one word, it would have to be silent because the response from these nations has been, you know, extremely disappointed. And this can be justified in the case of Muli Vaikal in 2009. So while hospitals were being bombed, children, men and women were being raped. Our Tamil diaspora at the time flooded the streets and tried to draw awareness. But the individuals who held power decided to stay complicit and not speak out against the genocidal regime. So there was even evidence of the Sri Lankan army raping women and throwing them on buses, shooting naked, tied up children and forcing Tamils to do sexual acts before killing them. But even the United Nations, which is considered an institution, you know, that has international peace and security, they did not make any effort to save Tamil civilians from the carnage that unfolded um, in May 2009. And even to this day, they have failed um, the Tamils. So even now, for instance, our Australian government continuously states that Sri Lanka is safe, but refugees are living in fear every day, not knowing what will happen to them if they're going to be sent back. The world has continued to be complicit and has caused us Elam Tamils to face, you know, intergenerational trauma, um, trying to speak the truth. And what are your hopes um, for the future of Tamils living in Sri Lanka and also all those Tamil refugees who are living around the world that you mentioned before? I would say my future for the Tamils living in Sri Lanka and Tamil refugees in the world is that we can get Tamil Elam one day. Uh, because we've been fighting since 1948 to get our own nation. For the younger generation, um, I want them to finally go and see their homeland without the fear of being persecuted. And refugees all over the world, not even Tamil refugees, just all refugees in the world to be given permanent visa and to end indefinite detention and offshore detention. Um, And those who were involved in the Sri Lankan state and persecuted Tamils should be tried for genocidal crimes and put behind bars but also for the Elam Tamils who have died, um, to rest peacefully, that knowing that their fight did not fail and that we did achieve our goal. Thank you so much for those words there, Renuga. Where can we find the Tamil Refugee Council um, and how can we support? So we have our website, Tamil Refugee Council, and we're also doing a Do Not Deport to Danger campaign, which you can find through the website. Um, we also have a Facebook and Instagram and Twitter account, Tamil Refugee Council. And we also have a YouTube channel, Tamil Refugee Council, where you can also see our speeches. Um, but on Facebook, you would see a few events coming up, such as in May, we have our Muli Vaikal 2009 commemoration event, which will have a national rally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today um, and unpacking a very heavy topic. Um, I really appreciate your time. And, yeah, but all the best for the the Tamil Refugee Council. We'll definitely put those uh, links in the show notes and get behind all the work you guys are doing. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you to Renuga Impakuma from the Tamil Refugee Council for those words on Tamil Oppression Day. And if you wanted to learn more about uh, what's happening over in Sri Lanka or the Tamil Refugee Council, head to our website 3cr.org.au forward slash Monday Brekkie and we'll pop in some links where you can access their website. Love the passion there. Really, really great to, to hear those reflections and to hear that view for path ahead for, for Tamils around the world. I was in Sri Lanka in 2016 and went right up to the, the Jaffna Peninsula and yeah, just seeing the legacy of the, the horrors uh, that occurred in Sri Lanka it was Oh, it was it was just uh, dreadful uh, to um, to reflect on. Uh, you see um, shrapnel everywhere. You see housing that's been reduced to to ruins, and and that's a place where you know that thousands upon thousands of Sri Lankan Tamils were were massacred by the government to end the the war at the time. And yeah, it's a harrowing and horrific uh, history, and there's still a huge amount of uh, oppression of Tamils that occurs today. So um, great uh, to be able to get the, the word out there. Certainly, and it's it's one of the largest groups of refugees in the world, and it seems like it's hardly ever mentioned in media. A lot of people don't realise that despite the civil war, um, quote-unquote, officially coming to an end, there's still a lot of cultural oppression um, and the government still just isn't really giving Tamil people the same opportunities as the rest of Sri Lanka. And the response from Australia, quite frankly, has been really disappointing. Um, as per usual, we operate under a, a sovereign borders um, regime and that just isn't good enough, if you ask me. I think we should be doing a lot more to help out our neighbours in South Asia. Um, but up next, we'll be playing a track from a Tamil artist. This is a musician. Her name's Shrisha. Um, and this is her, I think this is her debut track, actually. It's called Euphoria. Give it a look.
mean? Man is a monster, monster is my weapon, and my people live at being. Another day, another blessing. Just possessing my oppression brought me to my perversion. And I wanted it all, it's honestly my digression. What say my mind, my mic is what I reckon. Can you read me the question? Can you read me the question? Can differentiate that feeling effortless that I'm saying? What's the preaching you're praying? And they teach what I'm saying. Yeah, heard from my cousin. CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob and Evan. Thanks for your company. That was Euphoria by Shrisha. And if you wanted to learn a bit more about Tamil culture and Tamil issues, there's also a show on 3CR. Evan, do you want to tell us all about it? Wednesday, 7.30pm, every Wednesday, Tamil Voices, a uh, really excellent show. Uh, recommend it to anyone out there also who want to hear more good Tamil music as well too, just like uh, um, Euphoria that you heard by Shreesha just before. Some really good tunes, and in case you missed it, just a little bit prior to that, it was May You Never by John Martin. Excellent. Thanks, Evan. And up next, changing the dial a little bit, um, we're going to be chatting to Irene Noyce from the Renters and Housing Union, so the support network for international students and homes not prison, uh, is hosting an online event, Housing Justice After Lockdown. Um, so Irene's joining us now to chat a bit about that event. Irene, how are you today? Great. Thanks for having me, Toby and Evan. Um, a pleasure to have oh, you. Sorry, <laughs> well, well, both of us are here, so I'll, I'll, I'll take the welcome, and, and we're lovely to be able to chat with you, Irene. So, the event has been set up as an open discussion to explore organising beyond the pandemic for community solidarity and housing justice, and told that it's a discussion that will hone in on how we can build a path to more secure and fair housing 
in Australia. This this event couldn't be any more timely, could it, Irene? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been an absolute hellscape in terms of housing affordability for the last couple of years, but it always is. And so um, discussing what we can do beyond the pandemic is absolutely what we want to start the year off with. Um, We've noticed that in the two years that we've been formed, we've seen rent rise by 8% in regional areas, up to 20% last year in some parts of Victoria. And we ended the year with a growth of 7.4% in terms of the rent people were paying. And this is during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so in terms of being able to afford to live somewhere, uh, it's becoming a, an extreme challenge. Um, and with, you know, the discussion around the need for affordable housing, including public housing, um, mounting this year, I think it's absolutely important to really push home that we really need a, a longer-term solution nationally to the issue of being able to have a roof over our heads. Um, so it's a really exciting event, and um, it's really great to be able to have Homes Not Prisons and the Support Network for International Students join us because, obviously, um, different people feel these effects differently. And we know that international students have been extremely marginalised and discriminated against throughout the pandemic in terms of the income support that they were left out of and in terms of the issue around having um, safe and secure work as well. So Ness Gavanzo from the Support Network has been really incredible at um, organising around those issues and we've done a lot of work um, with them throughout the pandemic. And in terms of Homes Not Prisons, I think it's an incredibly um, necessary campaign to discuss that, you know, while our governments are paying for more beds in prisons, um, for higher police um, presence and funding, we're also seeing the scrapping of funding at a national and state level of social services and of housing solutions um, that actually prevent... Uh, incarceration and and actually provide people safety. So, so yeah, it's um it's a great way to kind of connect up those different struggles because I think we all know that the the best thing um, and the most necessary thing that we need at the moment is to actually be able to afford to live. So, Absolutely, it is the the most uh, essential need that's there. And you've talked about different responsibilities and different programs and, and different and, and where there's failures at, at all sorts of different levels. And this year in Victoria, it's a double election year with a, a state election and a federal election. So just wondering if you can talk us through what you'd like to see improve, first of all, on a, on a federal front and then also to on a, on a state front. Sure, absolutely. I love that kind of question. <laughs> Imagine if we could just do that in, in, you know, take that position in a day. Um, I think, look, the conversation around social housing is one that's sort of rife with, um, with some issues there. I think, first and foremost, public housing needs to be funded, full stop. Um, it is public land. We collectively own that land as, as the people who pay for it. Um, and there's absolutely no reason why we like why the government shouldn't be funding the builds of more public housing. They don't disappear. 
unless the government decides to, to knock them down. Um, but they stay there for, for generations to come, as we know in Victoria with the public housing we've seen around our cities and stuff. Um, they stay there and they actually provide stable and affordable housing for people um, for generations. So absolutely number one for us is to, like, absolutely increase public housing, not just community housing, but actually public housing. Um, I think another another issue that's really, really on the rise is obviously the rent affordability. So that word is becoming more and more of an oxymoron um, with the rent increases that occur nationally. We've seen a 27% growth in the last 10 years. Um, and people, particularly like in Tasmania at the moment, are paying 30 grand a year to rent something. Um, so I think a discussion around rent caps or rent control, um, some way to regulate that market is entirely necessary um, if we're to sort of see the next 10 to 20 years. I mean, we all know that most of us, particularly like, I mean, I know for myself, I won't be able to afford a home um, like to actually buy one in my lifetime. So the idea that we're going to be permanently renting um, with this kind of increase is just unfathomable and pretty much impossible for most people. Um, so some policy around how that's going to be addressed I think is incredibly necessary and that is a national issue. That's a federal responsibility. Um, I think one thing that we've noticed in terms of national housing policy is that it's always pushed to state responsibility and I think that causes another bunch of issues around what it looks like in each state and it can, it can differ quite greatly. Um, and I think we've seen through the pandemic that people have literally up and left and moved interstate throughout COVID-19 and one of those factors in deciding how, like when, where to move has been what's available um, and what's affordable for people. And we've known that Queensland, Tasmania have absolutely copped a beating in terms of rent increases um, due to market forces, quote unquote. Mm. So having a national strategy around that, I think, is incredibly ne needed. Um, not because we want to stop people moving from state to state, but because we can't have that much difference between um, between states, legislatively either. Yeah, So absolutely. I guess that's um, a pretty long-winded thing, but some better national housing policy would be, I think, an urgent need, yeah. For sure, and, and some really important discussions um, around that, I'm sure, will be happening on Wednesday. Irene, what are the, uh, the details around times and how we can get access um, to the event? Sure. So it's happening this Wednesday online from 5.30. Uh, you can head to our Twitter or our Instagram or our Facebook to find the Eventbrite link to register. Um, we'll be holding an AMA or Ask Me Anything with our Renters' Rights Support team for the second half. And we are so lucky to have Priya um, from Thursday Brecky and Women on the Line joining us um, as a host. Um, so, yeah, come along, ask any questions, um, join the discussion, and you'll find us on Zoom. Um, we'll also be live streaming on the, on the night, but it really is worth coming along just so you can be part of that uh, conversation as well. Um, we are recommending if you can donate um, to donate your ticket. Um, it is a free event, but we are paying the rent. So <clears throat> any, you know, uh, any way you can kind of 
chuck a couple of bucks in would be great. Sounds epic. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Irene, and look forward to attending on Wednesday night. Awesome. Thanks so much, Evan, and thanks so much um, for having me on. Pleasure. Great chatting with you, Irene. Take care. Cheers, mate. Bye. That was Irini. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Hope that you're having a excellent time this morning. Um, up next, we'll be hearing a short community service announcement. Housing Justice After Lockdown examines renters' rights in Australia throughout the post-COVID and provides a critical discussion on the roadmap to a more secure and fairer housing reality for everyone. The forum will offer an open discussion on organising beyond the pandemic for community solidarity and housing justice. It's a free online event on Wednesday, February 9th from 5.30pm to 7.30pm brought to us by the Renters and Housing Union, the Support Network for International Students and Homes Not Prisons and also 3CR. To register, check the website for details, 3cr.org.au. Housing Justice, a free online event, Wednesday, February 9th, 5.30 to 7.30pm. See you there. You're on 3CR Breakfast, and now we're going to play a quick track from Race Rage and Jamaica Moana called Do the Labour. Your boy Race Rage, Jamaica Moana. Remember about our struggle when the 27th hits When that post that you retweeted starts a dwindling like so shit When that dopamine's receded from those validating clicks And you're looking for what's trending and on brand you pulled a dip, dip The different compositions not the same Recruiters versus Corskin in the game Come back out when the shit brings down the pain The weather friends are vanishing the rain A party of performativity Simple sleep with tokenistically Attention seeking kind of sick and we don't want no lukewarm allies, we want an accomplice. Comrades come to do the work that we want to accomplish. Liberation bound up, no agenda, here subconscious. Protecting our autonomy, our sovereignty and compass. The work, to the labor, is on my job to hold your hand. To the labor, to the labor, the labor, to 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 the We don't want no lukewarm allies, we want an 
two on complex. Liberation bound up, no agenda. Here's subconscious. Respecting our autonomy, our sovereignty and compass. Now I know there are people that need to educate themselves just a little bit. You're on 3CR Brekkie, joined by Jacob and Evan. That was a little snippet of Do the Labour by Race Rage and Jamaica Moana. Now, up next, we've got a very exciting interview with a former SBS journalist and commentator, Mary Kostakidis. So Mary's going to be speaking on Julian Assange, who is the founder and former editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks. And Mr. Assange has recently won the right to seek an appeal from the UK Supreme Court. If successful in his case, Assange could potentially block an earlier decision to extradite him to the US where he faces charges of espionage for publishing thousands of classified files over a decade ago. Mary, thanks so much for joining us today. Julian Assange, let's chat. Um, he's been evading extradition for almost a decade now, first in the Ecuadorian Embassy of London, but now in a maximum security prison. Prison. What are his alleged crimes, and why are governments so determined to pursue him? Well, the indictment is for the 2010 WikiLeaks releases, which revealed war crimes, large numbers of unreported civilian deaths, and how U.S. foreign policy and diplomacy are used to prosecute endless over-there wars as Americans like to refer to them. So it revealed, uh, they revealed that diplomats say and uh, are aware of um, uh, things that are quite different to what is presented to the public. So governments in this way lost control of the narrative. Um, Julian put together a network of individuals, experts around the world, to look at the material, uh, to identify stories, to redact names, and a network of publishers around the world that were spewing out hundreds, of, hundreds, thousands of stories. So this significantly changed the power balance between citizens and the state because we were learning the truth. Mm, and some really... Uh, significant discoveries made back in those early days of WikiLeaks. Now, we know he's in the midst of a court battle in the UK. He's trying to overturn a decision that could lead to his extradition to the US. So what are some of the main details that we should know about this case? Okay, so the US appealed against the uh, district court's decision not to extradite him based on his health and on uh, incarceration conditions in the United States. Uh, essentially, the judge uh, did not agree that it was a press freedom case, did not tackle the issue of political motivation, uh, did not tackle the um, evidence that the CIA had plotted to kill him, uh, um, spied on legally privileged conferences with his lawyers, etc. The United States then decided they would offer assurances to um, appease, to mitigate uh, the concerns of the judge. And so they appealed to the High Court, and the High Court found that uh, they uh, 
uh, are happy to accept the assurances, uh, that they regard them as reliable because they're solemn assurances of the United States. The high, Julian then sought permission from the High Court to challenge this decision, that is to challenge their own finding in the Supreme Court. The High Court first has to identify that there are grounds for an appeal before you can ask the Supreme Court uh, whether they will hear an appeal. They identified only one ground, which is to do with the timing of the assurances. That those assurance that it is a matter of public interest as to whether those assurances should have been provided during the extradition uh, hearings, so that they could be tested. So, is it are the, is it an issue that the U.S. was trying to resolve by offering assurances, or is it regarded as evidence? Now, the High Court decided it's an issue, and they're very happy with the. Uh, result. But defence obviously wants uh, to challenge this because it, it's, a, it's an issue of natural justice and um, the US assurances we know have been reneged on in the past uh, with respect to the United Kingdom and with respect to Spain. Furthermore, they're not really assurances at all because they can be withdrawn at a whim. So any agency that has a in Julian's incarceration conditions, such as the CIA, um, can, call, can uh, trigger the withdrawal of those assurances and he could be placed in the very conditions that um, the district court judge felt uh, warranted a bar to his extradition. It's certainly a very precarious position for, for Assange to be in. There's lots of moving parts. Um, and we know he's an Australian citizen. So how has the Australian government responded to his case? Uh, well, they, 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 their response has always been he's being offered consular assistance. Um, he hasn't misplaced his credit card or passport. Um, this is a campaign against a um, publisher and journalist. And the Australian government has intervened in the past in situations where Australian citizens are at risk. Um, they did so for David Hicks because that was a very... That, there was a, a, an injustice there and it needed a resolution. They did so on behalf of Peter Grester, they did so on behalf of Moore Gilbert and there have been others. There is a, um, uh, a refusal to intervene here because it is the United States and because Australia behaves like the United, the, you know, the United States deputy sheriff uh, in, in the wars that have been prosecuted. And in the current situation that we're seeing uh, in our region uh, and the position with respect to China, um, so it really is beholden on citizens to say, well, what's wrong with what he did? We found out the truth because of him. Uh, and but 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 governments, if, if you look at what's happening in the Western world, there's this increased authoritarianism. So we're prosecuting whistleblowers, and now we're prosecuting a publisher, which is setting a terrible precedent because what it means is that the United States can reach out 
uh, and grab a journalist anywhere in the world that might publish information that uh, the United States finds embarrassing. Mm. And we've we've touched a bit on, um, you mentioned before, how some Western democracies seem to be adopting some of the the traits of an authoritarian state. Um, What do you think Assange's case says about how we value freedom of the press? Is that something you think has changed because of this? If they succeed, if the US succeeds in doing this to Julian, and and make no mistake, it's really death by process. Um, If they succeed, then it sets a terrible precedent. I'm very heartened that in the last week, what we've seen is journalists in the United States challenging uh, US government spokespeople in press conferences. There is that for me that is a seismic shift because Americans are American journalists have been very respectful other than Donald Trump because there was a you know a, a, a decision that he he didn't deserve respect they have been very respectful we've found twice in the past week that they are challenging uh, U.S. spokespeople and saying well. No, I'm sorry, that's not evidence that this is what Russia's doing. That's a claim. That's an assertion. Show us the evidence. Mm. Uh, And this, I hope, is a realisation that we cannot allow governments to continue to lie to us uh, and trigger wars based on a lie and and not and not challenge because that's a failure of the role of journalism in democracy it, it it's a colluding in subverting democracy yeah i couldn't agree more there mary well that's all we have time for today unfortunately but thanks so much for coming on and sharing your insights pleasure jacob thank you all right i think that brings us to the end of our show today thanks so much everyone for joining us up next, Women on the Line. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.